Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Where is Bruce Shuler? This is episode three, Wolf Creek. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. There is discussion about death. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Once again, we have covered a lot of ground to arrive here. In episode one, we heard of the location of the actual disappearance of Bruce Schuler. In episode two, we heard from Fiona Split, Bruce's widow, Bruce's daughter, Lisa, as well as Tenya, a relative of Diane Wilson, and we also heard from Elaine, sister to Stephen Struber. I recently spoke with Robert Reed, author of Murder on the River of Gold. Yeah, Graham, it's Robert here. How are you, mate? I'm well, thanks, Robert. Thank you for calling back. Yeah, no, sorry I didn't get back to you uh, yesterday, mate. I've been just straight out, and I didn't get the time, mate. Sorry about that. No, that's all right, Robert. Yeah, how are you going? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Good, good. I'm a podcaster here in Brisbane. Yes, I know what you're doing, mate. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. I'm doing a podcast on Palmerville. Yeah, okay. I've followed your work over the years, by the way. You've always done a good job. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks, I try to. And uh, I tried to get it right. A lot yeah. of research like you were doing. Yeah. You know, that mess up at Atherton there with that murder-suicide, which you followed religiously, that, that was just a disgrace. 24 years and three books, mate. Yeah, yeah. disgrace. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That, that was just, oh, you're a former uh, cop yourself, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, they were just lazy country coppers, mate. They, they were not involved. A lot of people come to me still and say, oh, the coppers were involved. They weren't. Mm. They, they were just cold as hell up there. It was Friday afternoon. They were tired, mate. They wanted to get back to, to, the, to the police station and have a whiskey. Yeah, I would think that was probably the case. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And um, they let, let that one slip. 
And it took me 24 years to get a, a, a third coroner uh, to agree with me that they were both murdered. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got, yeah. To keep, you've got to keep on the case, don't you? Yeah, you do. With Palmerville? Yes. I've read your book. Okay. It just seemed to me, when you interviewed uh, Diane in prison... Yes. I just got the feeling in your writing that you believed her. No, she believes herself. I strictly and honestly believe that she's told herself that she wasn't there that often that she believes it. Okay. I absolutely 100% am thinking about it. I went into prison uh, um, four times in the, over a year. Yeah. And because you're not allowed to interview prisoners anymore. Yeah. I didn't take anything. You're not allowed to take anything in. No, no, no uh, notebook, no pen, no electronic devices. So I just went in, uh, booked myself in each time, yep. and sat with her and spoke to her. And then when it, when I was outside in the vehicle, I wrote it all down. That's how I interviewed her. Yeah, just the sort of the tone of the writing. I thought he actually believes her. I think if if the writing gives you that impression, fair enough. Now I was trying to write that because. She's convinced herself. Yeah. I was was struggling with the concept of whether she was lying to me. Then I gradually came around to the belief, Diane has told herself this story so often, and I'd say to her, Diane, you were seen there. Nobody, no parole, you'll never get out. She said, well, I I can't admit to something that that I didn't do, Robert. Yeah. Like she was talking to me as I I believe that she thought, because I'd written to her saying I was writing a book on the case, yeah. and of course the prison authorities would have that letter, so, so they knew what I was doing, mm. but of course they couldn't stop me going in as a visitor, yeah. and I kept saying to her over a period of a year, I kept saying to her, Diane, you were seen there, mm. you were there, yeah, yeah, and she'd say, Robert, I wasn't there. Yeah. In the end, uh, getting around to what you thought about the writing, I certainly believed her in the end, but it was a mistaken belief that she, she was there. Yeah. She had to be because she was seen. Yeah. Okay. It's a strange one. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting story. I'm, I'm looking forward to podcasting it. Yeah. Have you started yet? I'm scripting it at the moment, Robert. Okay, yep. And I hope to have. Episode one out, maybe a week. Yeah. Good talking to you, Robert. Yeah, okay, Graham. Uh, anytime, mate. Thank you. Uh, good luck with that. Thank you. See ya. See you later. Bye. I have placed Robert's details in the show notes if you wish to purchase his book or borrow it from the library. Robert has also kindly let me use a diagram he made for his book showing the crime scene. You can see it on the Facebook pages. Robert has also written a number of other true crime books during his career. You will find details on his website www.murderandmystery.com.au. You'll also find that on the show notes. As part of their investigation, police called for anyone with evidence of harassment, etc. at Palmerville to contact them. I do not know how many people actually contacted police. A lot, they said. Police detailed 31 instances where people had a run-in with the Strubers over the past 20 years. Of those, there were 24 instances of verbal confrontation or the person felt intimidated. 
In eight of those 24 instances, people saw Struber or Wilson in the car with a firearm or the witnesses saw a firearm in a car driven by them. One man contacted police and informed them in about 2002 he was stopped on the side of the road in Palmerville checking his vehicle. He heard a gunshot and dirt was kicked up about 15 feet in front of his vehicle. He saw a vehicle driving off in the distance and it looked like Struber's. He did not see who was in the vehicle or who fired the shot. On another occasion, a man was building a fence on the boundary of three properties before a wet season, one of the properties being Palmerville. Struber had requested the man ensure the fence be built on the boundary. The man came back to Palmerville after wet season to recover his dozer to find a .357 Magnum bullet on the step of his dozer. He suspected Struber was responsible. On one occasion, Cookshire employees found a gate had been placed across the road into Palmerville and they required heavy machinery to remove it. There was also one allegation of tyre spiking by council employees. What I was especially looking for was evidence of assault or assault with a deadly weapon. I did not see or find any evidence of Stephen Struber or Diane Wilson physically assaulting anyone. In fact, I found the opposite. Where someone stood up to Stephen Struber, he backed down and invariably drove off. I discussed this with George Wilson. George, your relationship with your sister Diane? Yes. Can you describe that for me? Well, it was a very close relationship, Graeme. We lived together. Me and her was running the station there for quite a lot of years. Together when the other family had moved out and moved on, like they got husbands and wives, married, and then went did their own thing, and me and Di was there for many years, yeah. Do you talk to her? Yeah, uh, on the phone. Every time she rings, if I'm available, I do talk to her, yes. Yeah, I won't go and see her because I don't believe she should be where she is and I don't like going down and seeing that. I couldn't handle it, you know, like it's just too much for me. You don't believe she murdered no, Bruce Shuler? No, I definitely, I definitely don't because uh, this was, they had too much to lose to go. And why would you just go and shoot somebody for no reason? Like if you're not being threatened by this person as in going to take your life, yeah. why would you take his life? You know, he's got a family and, and everybody, so... And so why would you take his life just because you didn't want him on the property? That's what they're portraying it to be, that we didn't, when we didn't want people on the property, we got rid of them. So you don't believe Stephen was involved either? No. Stephen was a strange sort of fellow. He used to get a bit, like I told him, he needs to tone it down a bit. He sort of went to his head a bit having a big cattle station. What's your relationship with Stephen Struber now? It was very nice when we first met the man. He came across a really nice fellow, but we found out he was a little bit, you know, he can get like... I don't think he would have been enough to want to kill somebody, but he could get quite nasty as in just like, get off my effing property, you know, like, this is my property and you've got no reason to be here. And I just said, you're handling that wrong. You need to talk to people in the way you would want to be talked to because I would not like to uh, have somebody come up to me and just tell me to get effing off my property. You know what I mean? Like, off that property, if I was camped there, some people make mistakes, but if you go to them properly and just say, this, and like some of them here wanted them to move right now, I said, you can't do that. They've set up a camp. If you let them go by morning, just say, look, and in future, if you want to come onto the property, ring up and ask because we have telephones. 
and then we can, you know, like organise and if it's not, because some of the people camp in silly places right next to where you want to work your stock and then you can't get the stock through there. You've got to move them anyway because it's just not in the right place. But And some of them are just overnight stayers. They weren't going to stay there for weeks like some of these other guys do, you know, that want to go prospecting and stuff. Yeah. yeah, some yeah. of them are just tourist people, but he sort of treated them all the same as in, if you don't ask, you should, you're not on the property, get off now, you're trespassing. That was his attitude, you know? Because many, many people are told the police that Struber, and to a lesser degree Diane, uh, harassed yeah. them and threatened them yeah. and ordered them off the property. Same with me too. They said I harassed and pulled guns. I've never, I carry guns. Like, I carry a revolver on my hip, but it's covered. It's not sitting out in the open and where it's intimidating people. It's got a, it was there to, you know, do with injured stock and, and, and they're like pest animals yeah. uh, as far as that. And it was such a rough property. You needed one. Yeah. You could try and carry a rifle, but it was so, it was actually more dangerous trying to carry a rifle. Yeah. You know what, I know what I mean? Not only yep. that, the rifle then gets damaged. You can't do the job with it unless you can get real up close with a handgun. They don't shoot that far anyway, but like, you could, and it was much easier to, to carry around. That was the big thing. And it's a tool. Like, you use rifles for people on the land. Some stock or something there with either broken legs or it's down dying needs putting out as misery. You can't leave the poor thing there just to, like, die in the boiling sun. And then what do you got to do to, like, try and do it with a knife or something? You know what I mean? The gun was quick and the animal's put out of its misery. Mm. Are you aware of any instances where Stephen Struber or Diane fired above people or fired at or fired around or across or no that's right no well never was a gun drawn like many a times we've had guns in the car like i said i may even yeah. have the handgun on my hip when we met people because i am meant to carry it again as i say because you can't leave it in the car either because you know when you've got something like that better of having it on you you know where it is is with you yeah. you're going to be putting it somewhere and your license to carry it and, and it says on your license that you have to have the gun with you at all times otherwise it's back in the safe Okay. That's the way the laws are now, and I had it in before there was any of those laws. You know what I mean? That came in. The only person I could find who had been the victim of physical assault or assault with a deadly weapon was Tremaine Anderson, which was weird, one of the three witnesses to the murder. I was unable to put the allegations of any of the 31 persons to Stephen Struber or Diane Wilson. Prison regulations prevented that. A man called Coca-Cola John claimed George Wilson assaulted him in 2002. I put those allegations to George Wilson. Do you know a man by the name of John Tomlinson? John Tomlinson? Well, if, if I think it's the one you're talking about. His name's supposed to be Coca-Cola John. Because yep. I did see a bit in the book where I think his name was Tomlinson. I'm just trying to think yep. back because there was a write-up in it. And that is now another one. But there, if you want to ask me some more about it, yes, well, I do know him. I, again, briefly met him. I never spent any real time with him. He was going past. I was right, sitting in the vehicle. I just said, how are you going? And he drove on that way and I drove that way. I never actually sat down and talked with the man in person and that, but he was visiting a friend that I had, which was a bloke called Ron Dolan at the time, and he, he got along with him. And uh, that was it. And that's when I passed. He was driving well, out of Dolan's camp as I was driving in. Coca-Cola claims that you assaulted him again at the Crocodile around 2002, the Crocodile's a pretty busy place by the sounds of it. That is, <laughs> No, that, look, everybody used to go there because it's a good fishing hole, and that was the only major fishing hole. Was that one and the one we called um, it's a Cherry Tree Crossing. There's a water hole just above, and they used to call it the Rocky Hole or the Croc Hole, but the Croc Hole, known to me, everyone calls it the Croc Hole, but I call it the 18 Mile because it's actually oh. 18 Mile from Palmerville, but it was closer to Maytown. 
and that was the only major fish, you know, you could catch barramundi and all your different, like, you know, black brim, catfish and uh, perch and all that. And they okay. used to come down from Maytown to go fishing there from well, since Maytown ever started, yes. Right. Which brings me to the three amigos. In 2012, Denny Bidner was 52 years of age. He lived on a block owned by him and his wife at Butchers Creek, Maytown, that isolated area east of Palmerville Station. You will find its location on the mud maps on the Facebook pages if you wish to understand where he lived. Danny had been in receipt of a disability pension from age 26 years, but listed his occupation on his police statement as a prospector. He had never met Stephen Struber or Diane Wilson until about 10 days before Bruce Shuler's disappearance. Bidner told police he had, however, seen them on the road on many occasions. He told them he was well aware of their notorious reputations. They crossed paths at the Crockhole those few days before the murder. The Crockhole, a destination about 15 kilometres east of the homestead, popular with locals who knew it as an excellent fishing spot, particularly for Barramundi. Struber confronted the group at the Crockhole and ordered them off the property. Bidner refused, claiming as they were on the water's edge, they were on Crown land, not on Palmerville. That was correct, but of course Bidner had trespassed to get to the Crockhole. Things became heated, and it depended on whose version you accepted as to who the aggressor was. Bidner accused Struber of informing on him to the police, which resulted in a drug raid on Bidner's property in April 2012 just three months earlier. During that police raid, Bidner was arrested for the cultivation of 100 kilos of cannabis. It came out Bidner had other criminal convictions going back to 1984. Diane Wilson was videotaping the confrontation. Bidner continued to stand his ground and ultimately Struber and Wilson departed. Once again, another example of when someone stood up to Stephen Struber he backed down. Many considered this was a confrontation that sent Struber or Wilson or both over the edge, over that mental abyss where they dropped into madness. It was claimed Bidner told the couple he would be down their way next week to sort them out. The consensus seemed to be Struber and Wilson mistook Bruce Shuler for Dan Bidner in the gully the following week. Police obtained the video from Diane Wilson after her arrest and had it enhanced. The conversation was as follows. These are their words, but not their voices. Will I get it? Hey. Will I get it? Please yourself. He's an ignorant arsehole. Bidner has heard to say in the background, what, are you getting the gun out, are you? He's got plenty of witnesses. If those other cunts weren't there, I'd stop and get the gun out and I'd... Between the eyes. I am yet to view the video taken by Diane Wilson, but would obviously like to listen to it, to see if the threats were one-sided or came from both sides. Diane Wilson told police the battery was going flat on the video recorder and she was asking Stephen Struber if she should get the other battery out, a claim I do not think would ever fly. Diane later telephoned a relative and told her Bidner had threatened them. 
She told the relative that if anything happened to them, it was likely Bidner. I'm not aware if police ever investigated that claim. Bidner was good friends with Tremaine Anderson and described him as sort of family. Bidner first met Bruce Shuler a year before, as Shuler had to drive past Bidner's remote property to get to his mining lease. Shuler's lease at Rosie Creek can also be found on the mud maps on the Facebook pages if you wish to understand the locations. Bidner and Shuler introduced themselves and they stayed in touch. They had gone prospecting together once with Tremaine Anderson. Bidner first met Kevin Groth, known as Rusty, on Sunday 8 July 2012, when Rusty arrived at Bidner's place with Bruce Shuler. I recently put Bidner's claims to George Wilson. Do you know uh, Dan Bidner? Yes, and I have met him uh, many years ago, and then one time I went up there after the murder business, and this is where I know that there's a lot more to it with them. I said, murder and bitch sort of thing, and I said, now, if anyone knows anything about that murder, you were there, you know a lot about it. And man, he was like, he pulled his head out of the car, and he was trying to think what he was going to say for a bit, and he pokes his head back in and he says, you know what, bro, if you want to fly with the fucking crows, you'll die with them. That's what he said to me. Now, if you didn't do it, wouldn't you come up with a better answer than that? Like you would not come in. That's all he said. And I just said, well, I'm not your bro. And I am. I said to Doug, I've got to go because I'm not putting up with any more of this shit. You know, the way this guy's talking. Yeah. Just, I'm not staying here. I've got to get out of here. Last time I had anything to do with Bidner too, of course. But yeah. before that, I've met him a few times on the road or that. And we sort of said g'day and stuff like that. But uh, that was it. Because we used to, like, you had to keep him that you was with them, but you're not their friends because they're just, to me, they're scum, scum of the earth. Was there ever any confrontation between Steve and Diane and Dan Bidner? Yes, there was. It was quite a few times. Never got to, times I was there, never got to, like, anything to draw on guns or anything. It was just that raised voices and he just said, you know, he, he, he would come down. One, one part of he said he'd come down and deal with them. I'd heard that, you know, so I thought, well, that's a bit of a threat. What were the confrontations about? Well, just over them coming on the property without, uh, you know, like all they have to do is ring up and ask, not just pat themselves on your property and you find them there. You know, yeah. they just come in and did what they're like as if it was their property. Right. You, you've got to have control of the place. In 2012, Tremaine Anderson was 40 years of age. He resided with his wife at Machilba, a small township about 35 kilometres west of Mariba, with a population of about 600 people. When interviewed by police, he gave his occupation as snake breeder. He also stated he was a prospector and made jewellery in the wet season. He confirmed he was a long-standing friend of Dan Bidner of 20 years or more. Tremaine also had a recent conviction for cultivation of 300 kilos of marijuana, but I'm not aware if Anderson also blamed Stephen Struber for his police visit. It also came out that Tremaine had criminal convictions dating back to 1992. Tremaine Anderson claimed he first met Stephen Struber around 1992. He said he was prospecting on Palmerville, trespassing, and was knocked down from behind. He initially thought he had been charged by a bull, but found out he had been hit from behind by Stephen Struber, who ordered him off his property. Dan Bidner was nearby and though he didn't witness the assault, he heard the raised voices. 
Tremaine Anderson did not report the assault to police. His next encounter with Stephen Struber was around 10 years later, 2002, at the Crockhole, when Struber fired a high-powered rifle in his direction. From later comments, likely a 30-30 rifle, because that was a type of rifle Diane always carried, he and Bidner said. The first round landed in the water beside his fishing line, the next in the trees above his head. He claimed George Wilson was present and a woman believed to be Diane Wilson. Anderson claimed he was behind a rock and the trio could not see him, but they could see where his fishing line landed in the water. He said one of the bullets struck the rock he was behind. He was with a friend Dave, who was about 500 metres away over a hill. Dave heard the shots, but did not see what happened. Anderson did not report this matter to police either. Why would you return to Palmerville when the owners were that dangerous? And why would you camp within two kilometres of their homestead? I put Anderson's allegations to George Wilson. Do you know Tremaine Anderson? Again, I met him once, but never had a lot to do with him. Never really liked the guy either because he was very good mates with Bidner and that. They always hung around together a lot. He had a few things to say about me. He said he felt sorry for me because I had a chap that went up there. They were on the property legally again. This is after Diana. They're in jail by this time, you know, and uh, I sent two fellows up to see, and he, he put in a complaint straight away that those guys, I said to them, don't carry any weapons. You're going up there to see where this guy is. If he's in the wrong place and he's on the property illegally, we will get the police and we'll get the mines department because they were mining illegally. They were doing some sampling and stuff. And he had signs up saying, mining lease, keep out and all this. So Bruce Ree, which was working for me, and Joe went and had a look. And when he come, they come on him here, very nasty. He was up on saying, like, you come up here and you're holding guns on. They never had a weapon with them. They never. They took nothing from the state. They went up there just to see. They said, George Wilson set us up here just to see what was going on. Because we had fires. We always got burnt out with these guys. They're just forever burning. And when we seen the fire, said, go up and check and then see who's there. Then we'll deal with it. And I had heard that he was moving in there. So anyway, they dealt with it. But that's what came out of it. And then another chap went up there prospecting. And he ran into him and he said, got talking about things, you know. And then he said to Wayne, he said, uh, he said he did feel sorry for me. But yeah. I've never ever felt sorry for him because I felt he was the same as Bidner. They're just trash. They shouldn't be. They're bad people, you know. Yeah. Shouldn't be on people's properties and that. They just cause you more grief than what they were. Both them guys. George, yeah. Tremaine Anderson claimed that around 2002... Stephen Struber fired a rifle three times around him at the crockhole, and that you were present. Yeah, well, he's made that. That's a different story as well, because it was supposed to be an eye who shot, and he was hiding. And I was supposed to shot at him, and, and apparently it was a shotgun. But as you know, if you're in behind a bit of stuff and somebody did that, you'd be wounded some way because the bullets aren't one lot. It's it's spreaders. It spreads. Well, so he would have been a bad position to be in if somebody's using it. That was supposed to be in a shotgun, and I was the one. I even supposed to shot his lures. He went to throw a lure at this crocker into the water, and he, the lure got shot off the, the line, and I was standing there, and then I fired at him, and it's never happened, ever. We have never come across Tremaine Anderson with Diane and Steve with me present and found him anywhere, like, you know. We found him back at their camp. If we had to talk to him, it could have been a camp on the property, but it was never at the crocker. There was a time when they were up on uh, Cradle Creek and we went to their camp and we just asked them to leave, as we said, and if you don't leave, we will get the police. 
is will be moved then because there's no way we were there first and talked to him nicely. And he said, we're not keeping you off the property. If you do the right thing and you come with your permits, we sign them, we give you the amount of time you We know then you're going to be there on that area and you let us know where you're going instead of saying you're here and you're somewhere else because you know yourself on stations at the time you do have people come in they do shoots for like pigs and that. I used to like to try and do a lot of it myself. But if you have people or brumbies, if they're on their property shooting and you don't know where these people are, that's when somebody could get like, you know, uh, whizzed by them or something. But it was never anybody ever just picked someone out and put a gun on them. It never happened that way ever that I know of. I've never. I haven't heard that version of the story, but the one I've read is that uh, yep. Stevens shot at him with a rifle and it yep. landed beside the uh, lure or beside the line and he was behind a rock and that you and Diane were present. Um, That's right. Well, that never happened, eh? Because okay. I honestly say, there was right. never, we never ran into him. As I said, when I was with Diane and Steve, we never went ran into Mr Anderson at all. Clearly, either Tremaine Anderson was lying or George Wilson was lying about that incident. They cannot both be correct. I do hope Tremaine was not lying. His evidence was crucial to the convictions of Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson, and if he lied about being shot at by Struber, he would be a totally unreliable witness. And anyway, why would he lie? What possible motive could Tremaine Anderson have for lying about Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson being violent people willing to use a firearm to get their way. Brutish enforcers was the way one journalist described them. The only motive I can even remotely consider, I am extremely reluctant to verbalise. Was Tremaine Anderson lying about the Strubers murdering Bruce Schuler? Was the crockhole incident made up to show Struber and Wilson were dangerous individuals and likely capable of murder? There was no evidence to support that suggestion. But I did note with some alarm, Anderson commented in the videoed police reenactment only a few days after Bruce's murder, and again in Robert Reed's book, that Struber had shot at him once again in 2011, just 12 months before the murder. That was not documented anywhere else to my knowledge. Straight out of right field. On the flip side, it would be easy to write off George Wilson as lying about that incident. He is related to the killers after all. Even though he did not like Struber, he was still close to Diane, and it would be easy to argue a case that he would do anything to protect her. And if that meant protecting Struber also, so be it. And now that they have been convicted, what is he exactly protecting them from? What possible further penalty could Diane Wilson and Stephen Struber now suffer for shooting at a trespasser? To protect her good name, she does not have a good name nor reputation. She is a convicted murderer. But it raises an interesting question. Would, could or did George Wilson protect Diane and possibly Stephen Struber during the investigation of this murder? 
The answer is contained in the evidence which I address in Episode 7. Kevin Rusty Groth was 47 years of age in 2012. He lived in Cooktown with his wife and was employed as a linesman for an energy company. He had known and was friends with Bruce Schuler for over 20 years. Bruce had encouraged Kevin to take an interest in prospecting. Rusty called Bruce on Thursday 5 July 2012 and arranged to visit him at his mining lease the following weekend. Rusty first met Dan Bidner and Tremaine Anderson on Sunday 8 July 2012, the day before Bruce Shuler's disappearance. That gave me considerable comfort as to the honesty and veracity of the Crown witnesses. No chance of collusion, and no motive to collude. No doubt the investigating detectives probably arrived at a similar conclusion. During that previous week, arrangements had been made between Bruce Schuler and Dan Bidner to go prospecting on Palmerville. On 8 July, a Sunday, Rusty and Bruce Schuler drove from Bruce's lease to Bidner's property, where they met up with Dan Bidner and Tremaine Anderson. They then all travelled from Bidner's property to the Palmer River Crossing, where they made camp. Only around 40 kilometres, but around one and a half hours over the rough dirt roads. They travelled in Bruce's 4x4 and on Anderson's motorcycle, as Bidner and Anderson did not want to use their vehicles as Struber may recognise them. The men hid Schuler's vehicle and the motorcycle in the dry creek bed to further avoid being detected by the station owners. But less than two kilometres from Palmerville Station, they knew there would be trouble if the leaseholders detected them on the property. And Bidner and Anderson knew, at least, that trespassing pressed all of Stephen Struber's buttons. It does beg the question why they went there. Trespassing and looking for trouble, I say. Bidner's previous recent contact with the station owners at the Crocodile had been unpleasant and was still fresh in his memory. You will recall I interviewed author Monty Dwyer in episode one. In that wide-ranging interview, we discussed that aspect of the case. What were those idiots doing there? Oh, chasing gold, mate. That's what you do. Pushing the boundaries, chasing gold. The two boys who went in, there were others. So, I, mean, I think I mentioned it, but there was one guy who used to go in, you know, cracked up to the eyeballs and he'd put his headphones on and play loud music and he'd swing of a night time so he'd get away with it and he used to go very close. They were there because that area had produced gold recently, just yeah. before that. Yeah, but they're scared of Strooper. They know what he's like. They've had first-hand experience of it and they go within two kilometres of the station. Yeah, but remember, I mean, up until that point, it had all been bluster and bravado. According know? to Anderson, uh, he'd been shot at at the crocodile. That's and, right, he'd been and shot he, at. And if he wasn't behind the rock, the bullet would have hit him. And that was 10 years before. That's in his statement. Yeah, that's he, right. He was behind a rock, and, and had that's he not right. been behind the rock, the bullet would have hit him or been yeah. in his general area. So Maybe, yeah. Maybe that it's probably right. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did you speak to Tremaine? Not yet. He didn't want to get involved with me. Maybe it should be the three Galahs instead of the three Amigos. The prospectors did some limited prospecting that afternoon. Tremaine Anderson found an ounce of gold. I go into the events of that Sunday and Monday in detail in later episodes. The next morning, Monday, at about 7.30am, the men returned to where Tremaine had found the gold the previous day. They separated and began fossicking using metal detectors. They were within about 50 metres to 150 metres of each other during this time. At about 9.30am, the three surviving companions variously saw and heard a ute on the track next to where they were, the Bush Basher ute, owned by the Strubers. They identify the occupants as Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson. The prospectors scattered. The prospectors variously saw and heard Diane fire a shot. After a space of 5 to 15 minutes, the ute was heard to drive a further 20 metres or so. Not far. A further shot rang out. A further silence of up to 30 minutes, and the ute then drove back toward the homestead. The men then made their way back to camp, prospecting as they went. Later, when they went looking for Bruce Shuler, they could not find him. Shuler's dog, Red, had returned to the camp alone. The companions left a note on the windscreen of Bruce's car and went back to Bidner's camp at Maytown around 4.30pm. Bruce Shuler has never been seen again to this day. Property he had on him at the time of disappearance has also never been found, including metal detecting equipment, car keys, a necklace and clothing. The prospectors reported their companion missing to police at 7.15pm that night. 
eight police descended on the property the following day, Tuesday, 10 July 2012, and quickly arrested the leaseholders. Hello? Hello, is it Diane, is it? Diane, it's Acting Detective Sergeant Nick O'Brien from the Cooktown CIB with the police. Can you hear me? Not really good. Uh, it's a bit stackety. OK, well, listen very clearly. I've got something very important to say. I need yourself and your husband, Stephen, to come outside your house and walk up to the gate. The police will meet you. OK? Do you understand that? Yes. OK. As I said before, it's Nick O'Brien with the Cooktown CIB. I'm investigating the disappearance of a Mr. Bruce Shuler, and I believe yourself or your husband may have some involvement or knowledge in relation to that matter. Okay, so I need you to come outside the house and meet the police. Do you understand that? Okay, now listen very clearly before you hang up. Can you hear me? Yeah. I need you to walk out with Stephen and anybody else that's inside the house with your hands in the air and walk up to the gate and you'll be met by the police and I'll explain and I'll talk to you when you come up to the gate. Yeah, okay. Okay, you'll be met by the police. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. All right, I'll see you shortly. That recording was courtesy of the Queensland Police Service. That was a good example of what our first responders potentially deal with on any shift. Police, ambos, fire and rescue. They have no idea what they will encounter on their next duty. They are difficult and often dangerous occupations. They have my respect. Police attending that property had been told Struber and Wilson were armed and dangerous. Fortunately, the Strubers walked out of the house to the gate and were arrested without incident. And what a sight that confronted police. Their clothes covered in blood, which turned out to be bovine blood as they had been dehorning cattle that very day. The entire station was declared a crime scene, making it probably Australia's biggest crime scene in history. Struber and Wilson were taken to Mariba and placed in the watchhouse overnight. They had spoken with their solicitor and declined to be interviewed. They were both forensically examined and samples taken. Their clothing seized. As well, they and the three prospectors were all tested for GSR. No GSR was found on any of the five subjects. Later testing on Wilson and Struber's clothing returned a similar negative result for GSR. GSR, gunshot residue. If any of the five had fired a weapon, GSR would be expected. They were tested some 36 hours after the event. GSR testing can be nebulous, but finding residue, particularly in their clothes, would not be unreasonable to expect. This was not raised at trial, and I believe it should have been. The jury had an expectation and a right to all the evidence, good and bad. Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson were released from the watch house the next day. Stephen Struber was immediately rearrested for failing to appear in the magistrate's court on a charge of willful damage to property regarding a tyre spiking allegation on a previous occasion. 
Then, straight out of left field, three days after Bruce Shuler's disappearance, a bizarre phone call was made from a public phone box in Mariba to Palmerville Station. These are the words of the callers, but not their voices. Hello? 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 Is this Palmerville Station? Yes, it is. Is this the police? Yes. You're doing a search for a person? Yes. I have some information. Okay. You're looking in the wrong spot. Okay. Where do you think we should be searching? 12 to 15 k's to the east of there. Okay. Who am I speaking with? I don't want to give my name. Okay, then. Why do you say we are looking in the wrong place? I have someone that was involved. Okay. If that's the case, we would like to speak to your friend to help. We might be able to sort this out. Are you there? Diane Wilson initially denied making that call, but admitted doing so through her solicitor two hours later. In my personal opinion, her fate was sealed right there. I've been curious about that phone call since first reading of it. For any number of reasons. I was curious why Diane's solicitor so readily admitted Diane had made the call. Her solicitor told police Diane had made the call out of frustration, that the police were looking at the wrong people responsible and that the police should be looking at drug users who were mining in the area. The lawyers were obviously confident enough to have the conversation admitted into evidence without the need for the police officer who took the call to give evidence. You heard in the last episode comments regarding the phone call by Tanya, niece of Diane, and the possibility of the prospector's involvement and the crockhole. When I initially read that phone call transcript, I assumed the call was tape recorded by police. Why did I assume that? Because of the language. It was very specific language in the transcript. Imagine my surprise when I found out the conversation had not been recorded. The trial judge was equally surprised. He said this during the course of the trial. These are the words of the trial judge but not his voice. I mean, I understand, gentlemen. It must have been a tape-recorded phone call for the transcript to be so precise. The prosecutor replied, it was not recorded. I was particularly intrigued by the comment, I have someone that was involved. Who says that? I'm not sure why, it just seemed like an awkward comment to me. Maybe that was how a woman who had lived all her life in the bush, homeschooled to grade four, would say it. I was not the only one confused by the comment. The jury passed a note to the trial judge via the bailiff, querying whether there had been a mistake, a typo in the transaction of the conversation at the part, I have someone that was involved. They were informed There had been no typo. Just this week, I received some further documents in relation to the case. Whilst trawling through those various files, I found a file prepared by the Queensland Police Service, 
The phone call transcript was included in the file. The conversation was identical to the conversation you just heard, as it should be, word for word, except when it got to that word. In the file in front of me, it was written as, I know someone that was involved. How does the word have morph to the word know? I don't need to tell you there's actually a huge difference between I have someone that was involved to I know someone that was involved. Would the defence have so readily agreed to that evidence being admitted in the trial had they been aware of that difference? And they should have been. That file existed at the time of the trial. And I found it in the file hiding in plain sight. That would be the sort of evidence a good defence barrister would pounce on and maul the police officer who answered the phone call. The matter was raised during summing up, obviously. This was Diane's defence barrister. These are his words, but not his voice. There was a query from the jury about the statement. I have someone that was involved. It is a peculiar thing to say. It's ambiguous. It's loosely expressed. It's ambiguous in the sense of what the word have could possibly mean in the context of that sentence, and whether it means I know someone that is involved or have information about someone who is involved. It's an ambiguous statement. But one way in which it is not ambiguous, one interpretation that those words cannot sustain is that she herself was involved. She's certainly not speaking about her own involvement in that conversation with Detective Sergeant Grone. She is clearly speaking about someone else. The inference that could be more easily drawn, having regard to the circumstances that you know of, might be that she's referring to Daniel Bidner. Imagine the song and dance Defence Barrister, now District Court Judge Trevino, would have carried on with had he been aware of the no business. And he should have been aware of it. That was his job. In 2018, a public presentation called Behind the Crime, attended by around 500 people, was held at the James Cook University campus in Cairns. The transcript of the phone call was read out as part of that presentation. Guess what? The Queensland police used the phrase, I know someone that was involved. After their conviction in 2015, the Cairns Post wrote in part, Cold, heartless, cruel, blank, remorseless. I was sure from day one that they were responsible for Bruce Shuler's disappearance, Detective Sergeant Brad McLeish said. Stephen is a bully. He has a dominant personality. It's like she, Wilson, doesn't respond to anyone but him. Detective Sergeant Alina Bell described Wilson Struber's response when they arrived at Palmerville Station in the days after the murder to arrest them. The only thing she ever really cared about was the dogs. Who would look after them while they were away, she said. That was the only time I ever really saw her show any emotion. She is just cold. She comes across as cold.
I don't know that she has the ability to feel. The homestead resembles something out of the violent gold rush era the case has been likened to. A small tin shack with just slits for windows and no screens. Inside the floor is dirt and cement, while outside 20 dogs the couple kept as pets roamed around. The detective was sure from day one Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson were responsible for Bruce Shuler's disappearance. So much for keeping an open mind. And the officer left himself open to allegations of tunnel vision. And this just slits for windows. Like a fortress, maybe. Exactly what you would expect from deranged psychopathic killers. I have viewed the photographs of Palmerville Station as taken by police and I can categorically state, whilst the dwelling may be constructed of tin, there were no just slits for windows. Facts matter, Cairns Post. Unfortunately, many people believe everything they read in the media. Journalists are trusted to report accurately and honestly. If you were in any doubt that Struber and Wilson were cold-hearted killers, an article written by the Courier-Mail in 2019 would have dispelled those doubts. He, Detective Sergeant McLeish, described Struber as an absolute bully with a history of domestic violence towards Wilson. Both of them, strange individuals, cold and emotionless. Diane is a victim of her upbringing, She kills a beast, takes it back to the house and cuts it up. That's how she lived. She's a hard, hard woman. To look at her hands, she's got the hands of a man who has lived off the land. He said the body could have been dumped five hours away, ten hours away from the property in a cave, mineshaft, or a shallow grave, given the window of time the pair had to cover their tracks. McLeish also told Reed. He could not rule out the possibility the Strubers had killed before and where Shula's body is, there could be more. There are only rumours. There's talk of a murdered backpacker up there and talk about an older body that's been there for years, but we don't have any reports of missing people in that area for decades, McLeish said. There would be very few people who have not heard of the 2005 Australian horror film Wolf Creek. The plot concerned three backpackers who found themselves taken captive and subsequently hunted by Mick Taylor, a sadistic, psychopathic, xenophobic serial killer in the Australian outback. The Courier-Mail article on the case continued. Some of the more explosive, at times hysterical comments contained in that article included the following. Why won't the killers talk? How many other dead bodies are there? Why did they resort to murder? Was it purely territorial? Did they have something to hide, like a secret outlaw bikey drug laboratory? Or was it more macabre, and did the husband and wife hillbillies simply like to hunt and terrorise humans? Did the deadly duo ultimately get caught taking a scalp in a thrill kill? Convicted murderer Diane Wilson Struber, the now-jailed outback Cape York cattle station owner, found guilty of stalking, executing and disposing of the body of missing gold prospector Bruce Schuller does not look evil. But, by all accounts, she liked to ride shotgun 
carrying a Winchester lever-action .22 rifle on her lap. Her husband, Stephen Struber, on the other hand, has the wild, deranged appearance of a modern-day bearded bushranger. Known as the brutish enforcer, the grazier and bush mechanic wielded a fearsome reputation, driven mad and lawless by isolation and adversity, his dark eyes hard as flint in a thousand-mile stare. He wore a .357 handgun revolver on his hip. Now, for the first time, Wilson Struber has spoken out in a jailhouse interview about the true crime murder mystery that made international headlines and was likened to horror films Wolf Creek and Deliverance. We didn't kill anyone, Wilson told crime reporter Robert Reed for his new book, Murder on the River of Gold. We weren't there, she said. We didn't do it. She spoke to Reed inside Townsville Correctional Center's women's prison, four years into a life sentence, the first time she has broken her silence. She told him she believed by talking openly, it might rectify an injustice and uncover fresh evidence that would lead to a re-examination of the Palmerville Station murder. Everybody up there has guns, she told Reed. She was convinced a fallout over drugs produced by rival miners was behind the disappearance of father of two Bruce Schuler, 48, who was shot dead prospecting with a metal detector in a gully near the Palmerville Station homestead in 2012. His body has never been found and is believed stashed in a limestone cave, possibly with other slain victims, in a lost world known as the conglomerates. They're on the dole and growing dope and we were always having trouble with them on our place, Wilson said. Yes, I am angry, very angry, but I don't show it. There's no point. But if they want me to say I murdered him, I refuse because I didn't do it. Don't you think I would show them where it is if I knew? In 2022, the Daily Mail had this headline. Real-life Wolf Creek Killer Speaks Out Woman who stalked and murdered Outback Gold Prospector finally breaks her silence on crime that ended Father of Two's life. Buried in the small print, the article wrote, Wilson denies she had any involvement in the murder. You would be forgiven if you thought the media articles were about Rosemary and Fred West, who murdered at least 13 people or Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, the Moors killers, who murdered five children, or Bonnie and Clyde, who had a score of 13 murders to their name. Wolf Creek, Deliverance, Wild, Deranged Appearance of Modern-Day Bearded Bushranger, Brutish Enforcer, Seriously? Wolf Creek and Deliverance? However, once you realise and remember that the newspaper business is about selling newspapers, it all makes sense. And demonising the killers sells even more newspapers. No evidence of other murders or crimes on Palmerville was ever found and no evidence of other crimes was given at their trial. To their credit, the Queensland Police Service went to enormous effort in investigating this case. They executed four crime scene warrants. There were more than 30 police and SES involved. All recorded mine shafts within a 19-kilometre radius were searched. Police abseiled down mine shafts looking for evidence. 
All dams on the property were searched by the Queensland Police Dive Squad. Police on horseback and trail bike were involved, as well as the dog squad. The SES conducted an intensive grid search of a 10 square kilometre area. Imagine that, shoulder to shoulder, searching 10 square kilometres, in the heat, in the dust, with the flies and the snakes. Covert listening devices were hidden in houses and cars. Although Palmerville is a very large property, I am confident some evidence of other crimes would have been found, if any existed. None was found that I am aware of. Further charges would have been laid, I'm sure. I found it curious the arresting officer, Detective Sergeant MacLeish, who had policed in far north Queensland for a number of years, had never heard of Palmerville, nor Struber, nor Wilson, until he set foot on Palmerville on 10 July 2012. Elsewhere in the media, the following was written. No body, no murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, no confessions. It was a hard case to put together to convince a jury beyond reasonable doubt. Lead investigator, Detective Sergeant Brad McLeish, renowned as a straight-talking lawman, told of the circumstantial murder case. Fellow prospectors Dan Bidner and Tremaine Anderson gave evidence they saw the Strubers pull up in a farm ute. They heard two shots. But a small burnt-out patch of blood splatter, later confirmed in DNA tests to be of Shula's blood, was the only trace to be found. I believe Diane fired the first shot, McLeish of the Cairns CIB said. The second shot... The execution shot was a different sound. And of course that revolver is missing and the Winchester 22 she used is missing. And they've gone missing because those bullets will be in Bruce's body. If they fired the first shot deliberately at him, they've wounded him. They still could have walked away, but they followed up with the chase 100 metres down the creek. The execution shot and the body disappears. There's no doubt they put the body on the back of the ute and lit the fire to get rid of traces of blood. Added to that list, I believe, could have been the following. No motive, no DNA, no blood, no GSR. Minimal scientific evidence to show Struber and Wilson were the killers. It pretty much came down to the evidence of the three prospectors against the evidence of the two landholders. 20 years of threats, and suddenly, without warning, explanation or reason, they escalated to murder. Leaving aside, of course, the solitary, uncorroborated allegations made by Tremaine Anderson. The killers apparently had the time, the expertise, and the resources to dispose of the body. To also dispose of all evidence that would otherwise implicate them in the offence. They managed to dispose of the body, never to be found. They disposed of the murder weapons, a .22 rifle and a .357 Magnum handgun. They disposed of DNA and blood on their bodies, clothing and vehicles. They ensured all gunshot residue 
was removed from their bodies and clothing. How did they even know they would be tested for GSR? Blood and DNA is another story. And then continue to refuse to disclose the whereabouts of the victim for the next 11 years. Diane Wilson lived almost her entire life on Palmerville. She was homeschooled and her education was basic, apparently to the equivalent of primary school grade four. From childhood, her life was a dawn-to-dusk routine of farm chores and hard physical labour. Apart from friends and strong family support, she appeared to have little social life and a withdrawn demeanour. Her favourite television program was Home and Away. As a young adult, Stephen Struber was described as quietly spoken and polite. After leaving school, he completed a sheet metal apprenticeship. His adult life was one of hard physical labour. I have not met either Stephen Struber or Diane Wilson. I only know what I have read about them. They sound like bush folk to me with limited education and basic social skills. Where did these people learn how to dispose of all evidence that can be connected to a murder and a crime scene? And make no mistake, they definitely had those skills. They may not have heard of Lockhart's exchange principle, but they certainly understood the principle of it. In forensic science, Lockhart's principle holds that a perpetrator will bring something into the crime scene and leave with something from the crime scene, and that both can be used as forensic evidence. And here we had two offenders. Therefore, there would be two things the offenders brought into the crime scene, and they would leave with two things from the crime scene. As there were two crime scenes in this murder, we can double those numbers, but not in the Palmerville murder. Struber and or Wilson were sufficiently skilled to defy well-established scientific principles. What if Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson had no skill at all in destroying physical evidence? No skill at all in destroying forensic and scientific evidence? What if Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson did not dispose of any evidence? What if Diane Wilson and Stephen Struber were telling the truth when they said they did not murder Bruce Schuler? I said in episode one, it was a slam dunk that Struber and Wilson were the killers. What if it wasn't? I have now spent three months peeling back the layers of this case like an onion, getting to the core. To this time, we have been examining the dirty laundry of Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson. In the next two episodes, we explore the dirty linen of others involved in this sorry mess. The dirty laundry of the three prospectors. The Queensland Police Service the Office of Director of Public Prosecutions, the dirty laundry of the Defence Councils. Did I miss anyone? I still do not know exactly what happened at Palmerville that July day, but we are well on the way to finding out.
a small group of people, probably no more than 10, suspect another tsunami is headed their way, hoping against hope that it doesn't. A tsunami that will wash away the lies, the deceit, expose the truth to sunlight for the first time in 11 years. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Bruce Shuler's remains or know someone who does, I urge you to message his widow Fiona or make contact through the Facebook page Justice for Bruce Shuler. Alternatively, you can contact me via my Facebook page, Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations, or email me directly, graham5353 at live.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E 5353. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can be absolutely assured your details will remain hidden. Please join me in episode four, The Killing Shot. In that episode... I discuss the actual murder. It may help if you view the various mud maps as contained in the Facebook pages to familiarise yourself with where the events unfolded, the different directions the participants went after the shots were fired, the route the offenders travelled and so on. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. At this time, I aim to drop that episode in one week. Please rate and review the podcast on the podcast app. You just go to the app, scroll down to ratings and review and tap on the stars or write a review. It does help spread the story and it makes it visible to others who follow true crime podcasts and may have an interest in the case. Please tell your family and friends. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music by Janet G., If you like the podcast, you can support me for the one-off cost of a cup of coffee. Details in the show notes. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.